You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Uh, This message series that uh, we've been in, we've been looking at the inside world of our emotions, something we commonly refer to now as our mental health. And our attention has been focused largely on four emotions that make up a great deal of the mental health landscape. They are sad, mad, glad, and bad. Today we conclude this series uh, with a look at the emotion of guilt, bad. We all feel somewhat bad about ourselves. Now, we may not admit it, but in the private moments of our life, when life slows down enough for us to let this emotion catch up, we feel bad. That's something we've said, maybe just this week, maybe today already, maybe in the past. Uh, We feel bad, something we've said, something we've done. And, of course, we uh, have plenty of excuses, you know, what other people have done to us or the fact that we're just only human. But nothing we say to ourselves tends to make us feel that much better. We still feel bad. Now, in this series, we've talked about the fact that our emotions are really a gift from God. He is the one that gave us these emotions. And they are not to be lived for. They are not to be suppressed they are instead to be listened to. Because in a sense, they they really are a voice from God to deep inside of our souls. And they often tell us the truth about how much we need Him if we'll just listen to it. You see, we can run from God on the exterior of our life, but we cannot run from God on the inside. We will always feel our need for God, even if we don't believe that He exists. Our emotions are kind of like a divine tracking device that God has embedded deep inside of us that we cannot remove and that keeps calling us home back to Him. And so what that means is we can construct a life without God that looks perfectly fine on the outside, but it does not feel fine on the inside. So why do we feel bad? What is the message of our guilt? Well, this one is pretty straightforward. The reason we feel guilty is, wait for it, we are guilty. This is the most straightforward of the emotions. It's not tricky to figure out what this emotion is saying. But it's amazing how much effort we put into ignoring the voice of guilt. In 1952, Congress directed the president to proclaim a national day of prayer every year. That was 1952. So, the very next year, 1953, then-President Eisenhower wrote the first presidential prayer to be read to the nation on this National Day of Prayer. And in this prayer, he invited the nation to confess their sins. That was the last time the word sin was used by any president for that occasion. The following year, Eisenhower was still president, and so in his second National Day of Prayer iteration, he removed the word sin, and he explained why he did that. He said, sin is not compatible with his vision of a confident people. So he took out the word sin. And what's interesting is no president since then has used that word for this occasion. It's almost as if we officially ceased sinning as a nation 68 years ago. Now, of course, we didn't, but the word is pretty much disappeared from the public conversation. I mean, sin is just not something we talk about. 
It's, it's a bad word in our culture. It's, well, it's the S word. We don't really want to say it. But because sin has disappeared from our vocabulary, it doesn't mean, of course, that it's disappeared from our lives. We can't make it go away simply by not talking about it. It's still there. We still sin. So how do we talk about it? Well, we've come up with alternative words to describe it, words other than sin, words that, well, take the sting out of what we find in the word sin. So the first presidential replacement word was shortcomings. Eisenhower replaced sin with shortcomings. And to that, we've added all kinds of other sin replacement words. Words or phrases like error in judgment, disorder, disease, dysfunction, mistake, misunderstanding, on and on it goes. And these replacement words are there because they do present us with problems, because there are problems in our life and in this world that need to be talked about. But these are problems that we, in and of ourselves, without any help from God, can do something about. You know, errors can be corrected. Diseases can be cured. Disorders and dysfunctions can be fixed. But what do you do with sin? We can't fix sin. And the reason is that sin introduces another individual into the problem. It points to another. It points to the one that we've wronged. And we can do whatever we want to do, but the sin problem is not solved until the one that we have sinned against, the one we have wronged, forgives us. And that means that sin is something we can't fix all by ourselves. We can't resolve all by ourselves. And it makes this feeling bad problem something that we can't take care of alone. Sin ultimately presents us with a God-sized problems, set of problems, because, well, he is the one ultimately that we sin against. Even when we wrong each other, we are wronging God, the one who made us and who created the way we are supposed to relate to each other. And therefore, God's forgiveness is the only real solution to our feeling bad problem. But we don't like that answer as a culture, as a world, really. And so the reason sin has been replaced with all of these other words is these other words allow us to avoid God, to remove God from thought and conversation. Sin is a problem properly understood that leaves us with no place to turn but to Jesus Christ, God's only solution for forgiveness. So we don't like that answer as a culture. So we've redefined the problem in order to avoid the answer. And this is why Jesus increasingly makes almost no sense to our culture. We are dysfunctional. We're not sinful. We exhibit symptoms of disease, and we make errors in judgment, and we come up short, but we do not sin, and therefore we do not need Jesus. You see, Jesus is the answer to a problem that we no longer have. But despite all of our effort to ignore sin and not talk about sin, our emotions don't lie. We still feel bad. God has not removed the tracking device of guilt from our soul that calls us back to him. There is therefore no solution 
that we can come up with on our own merit that can make us feel good enough to replace the feeling bad. And so it's best to listen to the voice of our conscience rather than to try to drown it out or redefine what we think is going on. And like us, God uses additional words beyond sin to describe the problem. But unlike us, God's additional words are not to excuse sin. They are to describe the different facets of our sin so we can have a full understanding of the nature of the problem. Now, God really focuses on four words. And because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, he chose the Hebrew language to reveal these four words to us, to help us understand our sin. And David, the, the king that wrote most of the Psalms, which has been the book we've been focusing on in this series, David uses all four of these words in his confession written in Psalm 51. This is the confession of his sin after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. David was slow and reluctant to come to the point of confession and admit his sin. So God sent Nathan, the prophet, his good friend, to confront him. And after that confrontation, as you read in the top of this, that psalm, after Nathan confronts David, David realizes his sin and he writes this psalm. And we've looked at different pieces of it, but I want to go back and look at some different parts this morning particularly the four words that David uses to describe sin. He uses the word sin. That'll be one of the four, and then there's three others. So let me read verses 1 through 4, and I've underlined these four words. Some are repeated, and some are just mentioned just once. Here's what David says in Psalm 51, 1 through 4. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I, I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. So let's look at these four words so that we can get a clear understanding of why we feel bad so that we can get to the real solution. Word number one and the basic word is sin, the S word, sin. What sin says is we are aiming at the wrong target. The reason we feel bad is because we keep aiming at the wrong things in life. The, the Hebrew word here that we translate sin means literally to miss the mark. This idea, of course, is used in shooting as well as in living a life. In both cases, you're trying to project something a great distance. You're aiming at something, either an object, a target, or you're aiming your life at some goal, something you want. And that's what we do when we live. We, we don't just stumble through day by day. We lift our heads up and we aim at something. We project our lives and then we make choices to get our lives to our target, our goal. Sin is the process of aiming without factoring God in. We trust our internal guidance system to aim our lives at the targets we think will really make us happy. And as a result, because we haven't factored what God says into our aiming, we miss, and we miss badly. You know, when it comes to aiming, 
there are two factors to consider. There's the target that you're aiming at, and there's the distance between you and the target. We are all, as I said, aiming at something in life. Now, we may be aiming at different particular things, but there's some big targets that we all are aiming at, like happiness and significance. The problem is those targets are beyond our sight line. So we aim at something that we can see that we think will get us to the long-range target that we can't see, happiness, significance. So what did David aim for that got him in trouble and caused him to miss the mark? Well, he's confessing his sin of adultery, and it's described this way in 2 Samuel 11, verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David aimed his life at a beautiful woman. That's what he aimed at. What did he get? He got family conflict for generations. Hundreds of years of conflict in his family came out of this decision. He ended up losing half of his kingdom. A a terrible civil war broke out as a result of this decision. One of his sons died as a result of this decision. You can read more about this story as you read on. But this is part of what happened. David was not aiming at a single thing. He did not say, you know what? I want to see what I can do to bring about a civil war that will divide my kingdom. That's not what he was aiming at. He said, you know what? I want to mess my family up for hundreds of years. Long after I'm dead, my family's still going to be fighting over this. He didn't aim at that. No, he was aiming at happiness. He was not aiming at guilt. He was not aiming at destruction. But he didn't hit what he was aiming at. And we all face this challenge. The challenge is that when we aim our lives, we can't see what we're aiming at, really. We can't see what will really make us happy in the end. We can only see what will make us happy now. We can't see what will make our lives count in the end. We can only see what people say counts now. Only God can see, ultimately, what will make us happy and ultimately what will really matter. And he, therefore, has told us the intermediate targets that we need to aim at that will get us what we really want in life. But it takes faith to aim at a target you can't see. So we keep aiming at the things that we can see, and we keep missing the mark. We keep sinning. The second factor that's involved in hitting a target is the distance between you and that target. First of all, you've got to aim at the right target. Secondly... You've got to figure out how far you are from that target. What happens to every projectile that is aimed and then shot at a target is that it is immediately affected by friction and gravity. From the moment, for example, an arrow leaves a bow, that arrow is immediately being pulled towards the earth by gravity, and friction is, is pulling it down also and slowing it down. And if the distance is long, gravity will take that arrow well below the target before it arrives. And this is the challenge that we have when it comes to aiming our life. When it comes to aiming our life, we can decide to put our faith in the targets that God has set before us, and we can aim our lives at those targets and end up falling way short, even of what we're aiming at. 
The reason is that sin pulls on our souls much like the way gravity and friction pull on an arrow. It just pulls us down. And that's why we have a hard time hitting the moral targets that God has set up even when we're trying to hit them. David knew the downward pull of his sin well. He was called in the Old Testament a man after God's own heart. No one was ever labeled this but David. David was really aiming at what God wanted him to aim at. So the big question is always about David's life. How did he do this? How did someone who was really serious about God and loved God and knew that God's ways were right, how did he end up committing adultery? David knew the pull of sin, and we all know it. So as he confessed his sin, he knew that it was going to take more than just willpower to change. It was going to take more than just, God, I'll never do this again. I promise I'm good from here on. He He knew that those words were meaningless. So in his confession, a few verses later in Psalm 51, he says this in verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He's feeling bad. I want joy again. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. What David is saying here is not only do I want to aim my life again towards the only source of joy, your forgiveness and your ways, but God, I know now, that I'm going to need help from you on the inside to sustain me, to keep me on target. God, what I need is a a willing spirit. What's a willing spirit? It's simply a want to on the inside. I want to do what is right on the inside, and that's the problem we have. We've got divided hearts. We can make decisions that I really want to do what's right, and then something comes along, it's like, well, I kind of really want to do this also. And David says, I don't have enough want to on the inside, God. You know this. So David asks God to grant him a willing spirit. That's a great prayer. I highly recommend it as a prayer. God, I'm going to aim my life today at the things that please you, at the things that are right, the things that are good. But you know me, and I know me. And I don't have enough want to to get through this day. So God, please. Grant me. That means it can be given. Give me, please, a willing spirit today to keep me on track. That's the word sin. The next word I want to look at is transgression. David called what he did a transgression. Transgression means we've crossed the line. We've gone beyond beyond some boundary that God has set. Psalm 51.1 again says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. The word here in the Hebrew language means to trespass. In order to trespass, you really need three items to be a trespasser. You need a landowner on whose land you're walking. You need a property line so you know you've crossed the line. And you need a sign that really informs you that you shouldn't do this. Now, God is the owner. He owns everything because he created it all. The property lines that he set up are are his ways, his fences that he's communicated. These are the boundaries that I, I want you to stay inside of. Another way of saying it is he's given us his rules. 
Now, part of being a property owner is you have the right to say how things are done on your property. The other night, I was leaving the office here, and I heard sounds coming from the construction site that I hadn't heard ever since that construction fence went up. I heard the sounds of people playing basketball. And I thought, how can that be? So I unlocked the gate, and I walked in, and here were five young men playing basketball. They pulled one of the goals, the old goals around, and they were playing basketball. And I looked at them like, they looked at me like, what? <laughs> and I said, um, you guys can't play basketball. He goes, oh, we, we play basketball here all the time. I was like, yeah, before it was a construction site. Oh, is this a construction site? I was like, you know, don't insult me. So then I, how did you get here? Oh, we had to jump the fence. There's your first clue. Probably shouldn't be doing this. So I told them, hey, guys, I'm sorry. You're going to have to leave. And they didn't like that, and they said they love playing basketball. And I said, well, but you have to leave. Why? Do I hate basketball, and do I hate fun? No. It's a construction site. It's just not safe to play basketball. And in fact, we love basketball. We are constructing four new courts. We love basketball. God has put some fences around certain activities. Sex is probably the most contested fence of all. Why does God limit sex to the marriage between a man and a woman? Is it because he hates sex and he hates fun? No. I mean, he's the one that created sex. He's the one that actually made sex fun. He made sex fun. That was his idea. He's not against sex. The reason he's put a fence around sex is because he knows that sex outside of the boundaries of marriage is not safe. Not just medically. It's not safe for us on the inside. It's not safe for a culture. It's not safe for the children of a culture to not have a fence around sexual activity. But like those guys, we argue and we defy and then we pay the price. The sign that marks God's no trespassing boundaries are his words recorded in the Bible. David knew. Not like David could say, oh, I never saw the sign. What fence? Now, David knew the boundaries on sex, but he trespassed those boundaries, and now he was feeling the pain that God's fence had been constructed to protect him from. So now he is very motivated to obey the signs. And he actually wants his life to be a sign itself, to help others. So this is what he says. Again, verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. What's he saying? He's saying, God, I, I want to be, I want my life to be a sign. Right next to your sign that says no trespassing, I want my life hanging there saying, and if you want an example why, look at me. Look at the pain. Look at the loss. Look at the devastation. If you want to fantasize about sin, allow the fantasy to go all the way to the end and look at what happened to me. I want my life to be a warning. Not a, oh, here's a rule you should keep, but 
this fence is real. I crossed it, and look what happened. I want to turn transgressors away. I want my life to be an example of don't do this. And that brings us to our next word, evil. Evil says we are broken. Now, evil is a word that we still use, but we reserve evil for the worst of deeds, for the darkest of days, like 9-11. That was a word that was used often and still is used as we remember 9-11. But we do not use evil about ourselves. But David did. David used the word evil to describe his sexual sin. That's surprising to us. He's not bin Laden. He's a guy that committed adultery. But he says, I have done what is evil in your sight, God. The Hebrew word translated evil means to break something into pieces, to shatter. This is the effect that sin has on our lives and on our world. It shatters things. It breaks things into pieces. In David's case, a marriage was shattered. Later, the kingdom would shatter, and in, its pro- and it's, in the process of it, many people would die. Why does sin do this? Why can't sin just be a, a little kind of excursion into, oh, I probably shouldn't do this, and then we get back and everything's okay? Why does it break stuff? Why can't we tip th- tiptoe through the room of sin without knocking stuff over and breaking things? It's because we all have souls that were created in the image of God. And what this means is at the very core of who we are, we are dependent on God. We are to be attached to him the same way a shadow is attached to the object that it's cast from. It's the image of something solid. We are the image of God. We are to be attached to him. You know, if you drop a bowl on the floor and it shatters, the material of the bowl doesn't change. It's still, if it's a glass bowl, it's still glass. What does change is the relationship of the pieces to the whole. As a part of the bowl, each individual piece of glass served a purpose. But as an isolated piece of glass, it doesn't serve its purpose. Its value is diminished. What do you do with a broken bowl? You don't use it. You sweep it up and you throw it away. When it comes to mental health, one of the primary pieces of conversation is about low self-esteem or bad self-image, low self-worth. It's been identified as a driving cause for many mental health problems. And it's partly right. The way we view ourselves is a major piece of our mental health. But you see, God has designed our worth, our image, our esteem to come from him. We are a shadow of him. And when we are separate from him, we have a hard time coming up with a reason that we are valuable and a reason that we, are, we matter and a purpose that fits with the size and shape of our eternal soul. And so we try to stand next to something like a marriage or a job or an accomplishment, but it's never large enough for us to feel the worth that we really need to feel, and we still feel bad on the inside. 
You know, when something has been broken, the question is whether it can be put back together again. Thankfully, God can. We can't, but God can. Psalm 51, 17, David says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Broken means to be in pieces. Contrite means collapsed. David is saying, God, what can I do? Is, is there some, something I can do to make up for this adultery? Is, is there some way that I can put things back together again and, and, and get in your good graces and, and get things back on track? And what David realizes is there's only one thing that we can do at this point of sin. And that is to bring the broken pieces of our life, our life and a heart that has given up on piecing our life together on our own and give them to God. God wants us to bring the pieces of our life to him. Now, God will not piece our life together without our permission. We must give the pieces to him. Now, what's interesting to me is giving up in life and giving to God are frighteningly close to each other. It's amazing to me as I watch God push me to the edge of giving up and other people to the edge of giving up. And his purpose in that is not so that we would give up and jump off the cliff into hopelessness. The purpose is so that we would look up and say, God, I, I can't do this anymore. And that we might scoop up the pieces of our broken lives and say, can you do something with this? But in order to get us to the place of giving to him, we get really close to giving up. But that's the sacrifices of God. God does miracles with the pieces of our life. You know, one of the favorite pieces of furniture in our house, for me, is a Tiffany lamp. You know, a Tiffany lamp is made up of what? Broken pieces of glass in a lampshade. And I just love the way light shines through those broken pieces of glass. And that's what God wants to do with us. He wants to take the broken pieces of our life and shine his light through us and allow what was broken to become a beautiful piece of art. But that's only going to happen if we just will admit the truth about us, take our brokenness and say, here, I, <laughs> I've made a mess. Can you fix this? Can you put it together? And that takes time. God, God doesn't do Tiffany lamps overnight. It takes a lifetime. But boy, I tell you, some of the beauty that comes out of the brokenness is quite stunning. And that brings us to our last word, iniquity. This word points to the fact that we are bent. The word iniquity means to bend or to be crooked. Crooked is an idea that finds its meaning in the prior condition of being straight. You know, without straightness as a standard, there could be no such thing as being crooked. It's the same kind of relationship that ugly has to beauty or stain has to clean or lies have to truth. They all point to the original that they are a distortion of. This is exactly what sin is. It is a twist. It is a warping. It is a distortion of the original. It claims to be original. It claims to be a new idea and a progression. But it's always a bend. It's a twist. It's a warp. 
from the original. So how do we know when things that we're doing are crooked? Well, this is one of the reasons God has given us a conscience. Our conscience is an internal indicator that senses right from wrong, that senses straight from crooked. When something is crooked, it's off, we are designed to feel it as guilt. So you have to ask then, what happened to David? What happened to his conscience? How did he march that far away from what is right for so long? Well, his conscience had become bent. We often refer to it as a seared conscience. No longer has the sensitivities. It's no longer calibrated. You see, if a conscience loses its straight edge, then what is bent no longer feels wrong. And this happens all the time. We can do the wrong thing and feel just fine about it. So how do you straighten out a conscience? How do you calibrate a conscience? You can't do this on your own. You need God's help, you need His Word as a standard, and you need help from others. The word conscience itself points to this fact. The word conscience has two parts to it. C-O-N means together. Science means to know. Conscience, the word conscience literally means together we know. And it points to the fact that our Our conscience is calibrated not only about what we say is right, but what the people around us say is right. We know things together. And the reason that God has given us a conscience that requires confirmation from other people is because reality is not a personal matter. It's verified in the company of others. It's the same with moral reality. Now, this fact can help us or it can hurt us. What I mean by that is if we really don't want to do life God's way, then we just need to find some friends who agree with the way we want to do life. And then pretty soon, we won't feel bad about what we should feel bad about. Now, eventually, God's voice is going to win over our conscience, and we will feel bad again. But in the short term, our conscience can be seared. This is why David needed Nathan, his good friend, This is why we need the church. Our consciences are calibrated by our friends. So we decide that God's word is is what we're going to follow, and then we need to get a group of people that are going to help keep us on track. Together, we know. So the reason we feel bad is because we've aimed our lives at what we think will make us happy, and we've missed badly. And we've crossed the boundaries that are there for our blessing. And by doing this, we have broken our soul and bent our conscience. So what can an off-target, trespassing, broken, and bent person like you and me do to find happiness in this world? Back to what David said. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. David was saying, what can I do to fix this? And he's telling us, You can't do anything. I couldn't do anything on my own. But if we will scoop up the pieces of our broken lives and give them to God, he says he will not despise us. That's so great. What that means is God will not look at us and shake his head and say, yeah, I can't do anything with that. Or you should have known better. He will not despise us. He will not turn us away. 
what he will do is turn the pieces into beautiful works of divine art. So if you're feeling guilty, your soul is most likely telling you the truth. God is calling you back to him. So I want to close today in this series with a prayer, a prayer of confession of sin and a commitment to follow Jesus Christ, the only solution to our sin. And as I pray this prayer, so I'm going to pray it. I want you to follow along. Is as I say these words, as you listen to them, if you agree with these words, then pray these with me in your heart. Agree with me. So, Let's pray. Father, in the words of David, we say the same thing. Have mercy on us, O God. According to your unfailing love. Our love is so fickle, but your love is not, and we're so thankful. According to your great compassion, blot out our transgressions. Wash away our iniquities and cleanse us from our sin. We know that the hope of mercy that David was looking forward to has now come, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so this morning, some of us, Father, for the first time, accept that offer that you've given to us in your Son for mercy. And some of us reaffirm yet again our acceptance of the offer of forgiveness, the only solution to our sin. And we now ask, as David did, that you would restore to us the joy of your salvation and that you would grant us a willing spirit. Oh, God, help us to stay on track, to sustain us. Take the broken pieces of our lives. We offer them to you with contrite hearts, with collapsed hearts. We cannot run our lives without you. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.